Do you want me to work this, or yeah, do you want me to just do that? Let me see if that, uh, I don't know if it's connected. Let's see if it is. Otherwise, I'll just, um, okay. I might have to just, uh, I'll, not, I'll be completely happy with this. Okay, so my thanks to Paul, um, uh, to Barbara Wall, to Jim Wetzel for coming here. He used to be a colleague of mine at, uh, at Colgate University. What a pleasure that was. So, I'm going to say some things. Native American Heritage Month, I'm really happy to hear what you're doing and to see the, the poster and to see who's going to be here. I'm going to talk today about American Indian Catholics. All right? So this is called The Crossing of Two Roads. And uh, I'm going to talk about American Indian Catholics. And maybe I could call it Catholic American Indians. But the thing that I'm talking about is the crossing of American Indian tradition, that is a road, a certain kind of road, and the Catholic tradition also a road. It's part of a project that I worked on for a, you know, at least a decade of my adult life and it resulted in um, uh, four books that I, I'm going to be a little embarrassed to do it but I'm only embarrassing myself because I'm the one who's showing them to you and I'm showing them to you not to show you that I have these books but to, uh, to tell you something about each of the books and how it will relate to what I'm, what I'm doing here. So uh, these are books about American Indian Catholics, and I realize that I could have made a PowerPoint of it, and you won't really be able to see this. But the first book has a Navajo um, weaving on it, and it's a, it's a weaving of, uh, you know, if you will, Navajo gods, the Yei. And in the middle, there is a Franciscan priest who in the Navajo view, has now been incorporated into the traditional view of what would have traditionally been a sand painting, the powers of the universe, and this, this Franciscan monk is holding up two crosses, and he's being woven into the Navajo worldview of what the sacred powers of the universe are. And so the thing that I got out of this, the reason I put it on the cover, was that when the Catholic tradition came to the Navajo people and to other American Indian peoples, they made sense of it on their own terms. They interpreted what they heard to some degree through the lens of their old world view. And so you get to see this Franciscan as if he were one of the Navajo gods, and he's matched up with a snake over here. You know, everything comes in pairs for the Navajos, and he's matched up with a snake, who's not a, an evil snake, he's, he's just a snake. And so that's, that's an interesting thing to try to understand when two roads meet, one group is going to understand the other on its own terms. And in the second book, 
called The Paths of Cattery's Kin. There is a painting um, uh, made by uh, Claude Chauchoutier, uh, a Jesuit, of a woman named Cattery Tekakwitha. And so the paths of Cattery's kin, it's Cattery Tekakwitha, it's you know, the paths of her kin. She was a 17th century Mohawk and Algonquin, but she's usually considered more Mohawk than Algonquin, woman who converted to Catholicism and became a heroic character in uh, Catholic legend. And she's being considered for sainthood right now. She's blessed. And the way she's presented in this picture by the French Jesuit who helped convert her and train her is as if she were a nun. Uh, you know, she's presented with a, you know, holding a cross and with a veil, with a church in the background. And so the, the Catholics are interpreting her spirituality in their way. And so you have these two different traditions interpreting each other and all of the confusions that can occur as a result when people from really different worldviews um, uh, encounter each other especially over a long period of time. The third book is called Where the Two <coughs> Roads Meet. Where the Two Roads Meet. It's not exactly the same title as here, but I'll, I'll get to that. And what I put on the cover of that book uh, came from a, uh, it came from a event that I went to in 1987 when uh, Pope John Paul II visited Phoenix and he had a, an audience with about, you know, 15,000 American Indians, right? And I was in the audience and it was an interesting thing to see. And there is a Pima Indian medicine man who is blessing him, All right? So here is the Pope, the representative of the Catholic tradition, and here is a Pima medicine man with a prayer wand that he's holding. And the Pope is receiving his blessing. He's not giving it, but it's a photographer who is standing back from both traditions and seeing what happens where the two roads meet. So I've tried to do those three things in the presentation I'm giving and in these books that I put together. I try to see how each of the traditions saw each other and interpreted them. And I also try to stand back like a photographer and take snapshots of this encounter and to try to see what's going on in this picture. You know, there are some Catholic people who looked at this picture and said, this is blasphemy, this is terrible that this pagan man should be doing this stuff with the Pope and that he should be allowing it to happen. And other people said, this is the way the two roads should meet real respect for each other, really facing each other. All right, so you see what I'm about? Yeah, this is what I want to do tonight. I want to present that. Top one to the right. Thanks. And then the fourth book is the title of this talk tonight, and it's called The Crossing of Two Roads. And it's just a collection of primary documents. Um, it's, a, it's a book of documents about being Catholic and Native in the United States, right? And uh, so it's got some documents by Indians, some by, um, uh, some by non-Indians, and, you know, covers several hundred years of, of contact. The co-editors of this book include a woman named Marie-Therese Archambault, and I want to say a few things about Marie-Therese. 
Um, Marie Therese was a sister of charity. Uh, she's now deceased uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, she was also a Hunk Papa uh, Sioux Indian, a Lakota Indian uh, from Standing Rock Reservation, right? So she's a, she's a Native American woman and she was a sister of charity. And she and I and the third man, Mark Thiel, worked on gathering these, these, um, these documents together. And we took about a year to gather up our documents. He couldn't take it. He said, no, this guy's never going to shut up. I'm leaving. I can't stand it anymore. Um, it's fine. It's fine. I, I don't mind. And if they're calling for me, I'm not available. I'm doing something right now. I'll see you later. Thanks. Okay. So, um, uh, so we gathered up these documents from all different archives and we photocopied them and we mailed them to each other in big boxes and we met in Chicago and we, um, uh, the three of us sat down over a period of a week and we read through each document and started to choose which ones we wanted. Marie Therese was a really um, deep smart, lovely person. She had two degrees from the Pontifical um, Institute in Rome. Uh, she uh, spoke, I heard her in the course of the week we were together, fluent German, fluent Spanish, fluent French. I mean, she was really a very sophisticated, worldly woman. Um, I, I remember spending time with her in a bar watching uh, the uh, Chicago Bulls. Uh, beat the Utah Jazz. Uh, she was a big basketball fan. I, I'm trying to get across to you that she was a human being with a lot of edges and contours. And when we finished our week together of gathering up documents, she checked herself into a rehab station because she was so broken by the experience of looking at these documents of what it is to be an American Indian Catholic. And she spent the next year of her life in therapy because she said this was the most painful thing in her life. So I want you to realize that what I'm going to present to you tonight is an intellectual puzzle. You know, it's an, it, I'm about the intellect. But it's also something that has a huge impact on American Indians themselves. Marie Therese once said, and I want to quote here, she said, as a native Catholic, the very faith you embrace is the one that was used to destroy you, that collaborated with the government in cultural genocide. This is the terrible irony of being Native American and Catholic. All right, so this is, this is what I want to get at tonight. I'm going to show a lot of pictures tonight. I'm going to, you know, I'll sort of lose track of what I want to say and I'm just going to look at pictures because I want you to see the faces of American Indian Catholics. You know, it's one thing to say what happens when two traditions meet as if the traditions are, uh, you know, things. And they are things. But there are also persons who embody these traditions and I want you to see some of the faces of, um, of American Indian people. Um, uh, as they became Catholic and as they lived their Catholic lives. Uh, Paul uh, introduced me and I want to quote from him in his beautiful and complex book, those of you who haven't read it, I highly recommend it, called Serving Their Country, American Indian Politics and Patriotism in the 20th Century. He analyzes what he calls an ideology of hybrid 
patriotism. Hybrid <coughs> patriotism. What does that mean? What is hybrid patriotism? You know, when you might have loyalty, alliance, with both Indian and American systems. I want to do the same thing for religion. You know, what does it mean to be a hybrid American-Indian Catholic? So, here goes. Let's see if any of this works. So, um, I'm going to take one particular group and I'm going to look at this particular group. And the people that I'm looking at here are um, people of the Northern Plains. Right? You can see uh, where we are there, more or less. And you can see uh, down in the bottom here, you see Eastern Sioux, Yankton-Ai Sioux, Teton Sioux. Right, so Western Sioux and Eastern and Middle Sioux, or sometimes Lakota, uh, Nakota and Dakota, if you will. Uh, the people that I, I'm going to look at almost totally are Teton Sioux, uh, so Western Sioux people. Um, and this, of course, you can't see at all, but you can see the word Teton Sioux, and so that's a nice thing. You can see it spelled out there. And this just shows several reservations, and, uh, and so we'll, uh, I'll get to a better slide. Um, but I wanted you to see that, that there are a bunch of different reservations that the Teton Sioux live on in both North and South Dakota. Uh, originally in 1867, it was one reservation, and then they got smaller and smaller. But I'm going to be talking about one particular reservation, which is uh, the Pine Ridge Reservation um, in South Dakota. Okay, so, so that's, that's, that's where I am. And the Pine Ridge Reservation is the second largest reservation in the United States. Uh, after the Navajo Reservation, it is um, also uh, the poorest county in the United States. Shannon County, uh, South Dakota is, and has been for the last 20 years, the poorest place in America, right, in the United States. So just so, just so you realize that. Okay. I need to say some things about traditional Lakota religiousness. So before there were Catholic missionaries, the Lakota people already had, if you will, a religion. They had a spiritual life. They had, a, they had values. They had notions of um, eternality. They had notions of transcendence. They had gods, if you will, spirits that they communicated with. They had means by which they communicated with those spirits. They had um, an ethical system. I, like the various things that you would think of when you think of a religion. And I just want to say a few things about that traditional religion, and I will come back to this at the end of the talk, which, by the way, will take no longer than three hours, I swear. I swear, you'll be out of here by tomorrow morning, easily, easily. Um, unless you ask questions, in which case, you know, it'll be, it'll be tomorrow afternoon, probably. Okay, so I, I have these two words up here, and I want you to see these two words. One is the word wakan, and it's a word, it's a Lakota word that stands for the holy, the sacred, the mysterious, the, oh my God, amazing, unbelievable character of the universe uh, in all of its parts. And there are certain beings that are more Wakan than others. Those are Wakan Tanka beings. But there is a notion of this tremendous force, this tremendous power that one would like to be in touch with. All right, so that's the first term. And the second term is Wasekie. And Wasekie 
is really an interesting term. My, my look, I don't speak Lakota. These are just words that I know, you know, sort of, you know, my hundred words in, in Lakota. Um, Wasekie is often what is translated as prayer. Right? So when Christian missionaries tried to find a good word for prayer, they used the word wasekie. What it really means, I mean, it's not that it doesn't mean prayer, it means making relatives. And that is what Lakota religion is about. It's about making relatives with the universe, with other humans, with non-human persons. So when you think of Lakota religion, you have to think of them as making relatives. And as I say, I'll come back to that at the end of the, at the, end of the talk. The Lakotas had these various means by which they um, uh, uh, tried to make relatives or pray. And um, just because I skipped over it, this is a pipe. Right? This is one of the many pipes that the Lakotas have. This is not the sacred pipe, but this is a pipe. And it's a, it is, let's say, the simplest means by which Lakota people would get in touch with the Wakan beings, but with anyone that you want to be in touch with, any kind of person that you want to make a relative with. And it's usually made of a uh, stone, usually redstone, pipestone, as it's called, from Pipestone, Minnesota, and a shaft, so something from the stone world, because stone is the oldest character in the universe, the oldest, and the other part is made of something living and moving, something that's always growing, and they're kept separate, and when you put them together, they form the perfect means by which you can communicate between one world and another world. For this reason, you put tobacco or kinnik into the pipe bowl and you light it with fire and what is visible becomes invisible. It creates smoke which then goes up into the universe and that represents physically the interplay between the physical world and the spiritual world, the visible world and the invisible world. If you will, sometimes the world of the ground and the world of the sky, but especially between the visible and invisible world. So the Lakotas had a means of communicating with this spiritual world. They had a, a, a legend, a story, a myth, a narrative that tells how the pipe came to be. And it's a story about the white buffalo calf woman and how she brought the sacred pipe to her people and taught them how to pray with the pipe. And so not only did they have a way of praying, but they also had an understanding of how that way of praying came to be, a tradition, something that explained uh, how things came to be. If they wanted to get themselves pure before coming into contact with the gods, the Wakan beings, they would uh, engage in what we sometimes call a sweat lodge. Uh, their word is inipi, but it's a purification lodge. And so they would uh, sit in this purifying lodge and they would sweat out their, uh, their impurities. And at the end of every ceremony, they would repeat the, the 
iconic Lakota prayer, which is all my relations. All my relations, which of course represents that goal of Wasekie, to make relatives, to declare that we are relatives together in this universe. Uh, Lakota men, but also women, but more men than women, uh, would seek primary relationships with particular spirits in the spirit world by going, as they say, up the hill, by making um, vision quests. And so this is an you know, idealized picture, and you see the man has a, has a pipe, and he's praying with the pipe, and he's offering it up, and he's now going to go up the hill, and when he gets up the hill, he's going to set up a, a little encampment for himself, and he will stay there for a night, for two nights, for maybe five nights, as long as ten nights, with no food, some water, and he will encounter the spiritual world, which will come to him and will reveal something about the nature of the spirit um, to him and will promise him help. So you seeing the religion, you know, coming into focus here, this is how the Lakota people for centuries had, um, had practiced their religion. For the women, uh, again, some women did make uh, the vision quest. When a woman had her puberty ceremony, she had the white buffalo ceremony named after the white buffalo calf woman. And it was a, a day of generosity and splendor and grace, giveaways. Um, and she would bless everyone in the families, and her families would, would honor her. Um, and just to see a photograph of a particular white buffalo ceremony from 1892, you see all the goods that are lined up, and people will give away things to show one of the best ways of making an exchange with people, so, you know, Jim's going to teach this course on exchange, you know, is to share goods with people, to form, uh, you know, to say that I've given you something. And that may mean that you owe me something someday, but that's what a relationship is about. Making relatives uh, is, is a goal of this ceremony. And then every year, the Lakotas would practice what we call the, the sun dance, but went by a lot of different names, thirsting dance and, and so forth. And this is a dance in which they would establish in the midsummer a lodge that was the entire cosmos. It was made up to represent all of the universe. And uh, they would have a central pole and an outer circuit and an encampment would be formed around it, and all of the Lakota people would come and celebrate this, this uh, Sundance together, and they would make marriages, and they would get to see relatives, and enemies could come and join with them and be peaceful, you know, at least for the moment, you know, before going back into the, the, the regular world. And there are some nice... Uh, uh, drawings of it from 1874, and one of the things that people really focus on was, as you see this fellow here in the, in the middle, um, there would be feats of self-sacrifice in, in which men would attach themselves to the central pole and would uh, cause themselves tremendous uh, physical harm for the good of everyone else. They would attach uh, buffalo skulls to their chest, underneath the 
underneath the, the muscle, not just in the skin, but underneath the muscle, and they would pull down on them until the muscle ripped apart. Um, I mean, it was, it was, as the Lakota say, what Jesus did for us. You know, the, the Lakotas in the 20th century have said, you know, your religion is one in which you have someone else do the sacrificing. We did it ourselves. We took it seriously. We had a real religion. I see, you see when people come into contact with each other, they make comments about each other. Um, all right, so here's just another picture of the Sundance just to give you the sense of this man pulling away, uh, blowing on his eagle uh, bone whistle, high-pitched whistle to uh, try to stave off the pain that he's experiencing because he might do it for several days, pulling and pulling and pulling until, uh, until the muscle uh, ripped. And another picture. All right, so, so you get to see uh, what it's like. Okay, so Lakotas had a religion before, before um, Christians came into their community. The first Christians came to the Lakotas in the 17th century. Uh, the Lakotas who were in South Dakota by the 19th century were much further east earlier and they came into contract, contact with uh, French fur traders and with the priests who were with the French fur trade and so they heard little bits and pieces about um, this religion, uh, this, you know, these men who had contact with another form of Wakan being. Uh, you know, who, who was these people's spiritual power that they were in touch with? You can imagine being in touch with these people who come to you and speak another language that you don't understand, but they're trying to communicate to each other, and they're not trying to talk about you know, how much can I trade you this beaver skin for that, you know, iron pot? But they're trying to explain that to them what the ultimate reality of the world is in a language that you don't even understand. So they had contact as far back as the 17th century and um, Indian converts like uh, Mohawk traders uh, who had been converts to Catholicism came west in the 18th century and settled sometimes among the Lakotas and, and tried to get them more interested in this Christian religion, uh, whatever that might mean. Um, in the 19th century, there was a, a Belgian Jesuit named Jean-Pierre uh, uh, Jean uh, uh, Jean Desmet who uh, came out onto the plains and he came into contact with a lot of Plains Indians um, and he handed out crucifixes. And he was a very impressive guy, uh, you know, from all of the accounts. Of course, most of the accounts are his own accounts. But, but from the accounts, he says that people were really interested in him. They really liked him. They really liked the gifts he was giving them. Any of you know who Sitting Bull is? Have you ever heard of him before? Sitting Bull? All right, so you know, you know that, that Sitting Bull is the person, is the warrior, the Lakota warrior who defeated uh, Custer in 1876. He, he was the Osama bin Laden of the late 19th century for Americans. This terrorist on the plains, uh, he, you know, where could he be found? He was always escaping, escaping to Canada when you're trying to get him. You could never track him down. Well, Sitting Bull um, met with Desmet, and they have a photograph of him with that very crucifix. 
and he loved to wear that crucifix around his neck. What do you think it meant to him? You know, what, why was he wearing it around his neck? Was this another form of power that he might gain? He was interested in being in touch with all aspects of the Wakan world. Well, here was a priest telling him about some other Wakan being who looks an awful lot like a sun dancer, you know, who's making some sacrifice. And the skull beneath him, crossbones. You know, we have no idea what, what Sitting Bull thought. And that's often the way it is with people who convert to a new religion. They may go through motions that look like motions that you might go through. Any of you wearing crosses tonight? Some of you might, right? Was he thinking the same thing you're thinking? Or was he thinking something different? We just have no idea what he was thinking. All right, so Christianity came among the, the Sioux, came among the Lakotas as a mysterious new notion of the, uh, the Wakan world, the sacred world. This fellow, Red Cloud, was one of the uh, chiefs, one of the main leaders, political leaders, of the uh, Lakota people at Pine Ridge Reservation. And Red Cloud had <coughs> several, but many, French in-laws. So among the Lakotas, there were French traders who came among them, who were Catholics, who um, intermarried with Lakota women and started to raise families and started to talk about their Catholicism and their desire for, a, for priests to be among them so they could receive sacraments, so they could do the rituals of, of Catholic uh, religious life. There were also Irish uh, traders who were living among them and they intermarried. So you have the Puriers and the Mousseaux uh, who were related to Red Cloud. There were the Tibbets and other, other people who were the Irish. And there were Mexicans who traveled among the Lakotas and traded and settled in among them. So for example, there's a, you know, a big family among the um, uh, Lakotas named, well, they call it now Jago, but you know, Hyago, um, uh, and uh, we'll see one of them later on. All right? So, under this influence of European traders intermarrying into the tribe, Red Cloud asked for some Catholic priests to be assigned to Pine Ridge Reservation. He also was interested in education. He wanted to have people, he wanted his, some of his children to be able to read and to be able to meet white people on their own terms and be able to know what they're up to. He may have had other motives, but those motives are clear. And you see the picture of him here. He has a pipe in his hand. Uh, he has a medal. It's a peace medal to show that he's a peace chief. And so in 1888, uh, Jesuits, right, members of the Society of Jesus, uh, mostly Germans who had escaped from uh, Germany, uh, from the Kulturkampf 
uh, of previous generations. They lived for a while in Buffalo, uh, New York, and they were looking for religious activity, religious mission. What, what is it that they should do in this new world? And so a group of them, uh, this is not, you know, this is not all of them at, in 1888. This is a much later photograph. But they arrived at Pine Ridge Reservation and they established what is known as Holy Rosary Mission. All right, so here's just a photograph of the Jesuits and there was a time when I could tell you who they, you know, who they all were. Uh, these were amazing guys, these Jesuits. Most of the original Jesuits learned how to speak fluent Lakota. They did translations, they wrote prayer books. They were, they were just heroic characters spreading their religion. And they brought with them, shortly thereafter, um, sisters. Uh, so sisters of St. Francis. Um, and they also arrived, some of them arrived in 1888. We know a little less about them because the Jesuits kept a lot of records. Uh, you know, so I've looked through a lot of archival records of their writings, their diaries, their, their um, uh, 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 vocational uh, tracts, uh, and you'll see some other things. The sisters hardly wrote at all. They, you know, it's very hard to find what they were thinking and saying. Uh, they're much more mysterious as characters. They were mysterious to the Lakotas, too. Like, who are these people? At first they said, oh, you must be their wives. Right? You must be the Jesuits' wives. I mean, you know, they've now sent for their wives because they couldn't imagine, like, people being celibate. What, a, what an odd ideal. Like, why would one be celibate? I mean, they, just, they found it a very hard thing to understand. But they came to um, accept these people. They came to accept the food that they served. Imagine eating sauerkraut for the first time. Really, the, I mean, the Lakotas were not sure this was the kind of thing they wanted to eat. Well, I wonder if they're going to want their religion. You know, much less their food. They came to like their sauerkraut and their other foods, and we'll see, we'll see something about that. Um, people say that the Lakotas at Pine Ridge and Rosebud speak English with a German accent. And it's because these early, these early uh, Jesuits and sisters um, of St. Francis were mostly Germans, and they, they spoke English with a German accent, too. No sooner had they arrived, the Jesuits and the sisters, when the ghost dance took place. Now, some of you may know what the ghost dance was, and uh, I'm going to just tell it very briefly. It was a movement uh, that began among a, a Paiute Indian in Nevada, and Indians across the western part of the United States sent envoys to this man and they wanted to hear what his message was. And his message was this, that the world was going to come to an end. That we were in last days. Now, this man, his name was Wavoka, had, had both Catholic and Mormon training. Right? So he knew about last days, and he you know, had heard about such things. And some people even referred to him as the Indian Christ, or the Indian Messiah. And he was saying that the world was going to come to an end as it exists now. And if Indians would perform a particular dance, 
they would be able to communicate with their dead relatives. Uh, the, the amount of disease that had taken place in the late 19th century on the plains was enormous. Uh, Indian peoples, had, you know, everyone had lost many members of their family. This would provide an opportunity for them to be back in touch with them. The buffalo had almost completely disappeared by 1890 because, uh, mostly because of uh, white people killing them by the, you know, some people say 30 million over a 30-year uh, period. Um, you know, many for sport, many just for fun. You know, one man said how proudly he, he you know, he killed 100 buffalo in one day and didn't take a scrap of meat. Um, all right, anyway. The buffalo would return, the dead would return, the white people would get washed away by a wave of earth and the world would return to a previous uh, Edenic quality. That's what the ghost dance was. Now it had other aspects. So you see these people dancing this traditional round dance. And they would seek visions, so they would dance. Some of the people would dance wildly and get themselves into uh, states of altered consciousness. And they would uh, try to communicate with the other world. So this, this dance took place, and the, in, the, the Lakotas, as well as other Indian groups, picked up the ghost dance, and they, they made it their own to, to some degree. Um, in Decem on December 30th, 1890, uh, a group of Lakotas, not from Pine Ridge, but from Standing Rock, um, were uh, dancing the dance, and they were told to cease and desist. Uh, the 7th and the 9th Cavalry came out to round them up and to stop them from doing this dance. Uh, Sitting Bull, remember our friend Sitting Bull, was assassinated at a, at a uh, pre-dawn raid on his house. Um, and uh, the, the dance, one particular dancing group led by a man named, with the unfortunate name of Bigfoot, um, uh, were massacred at a place called Wounded Knee, uh, which is on the Pine Ridge uh, Reservation. Um, not so very far from where Holy Rosary Mission was. And if you read, as I've read, the, the Jesuits' reports, they tell about how frenzied and excited the Lakotas were about the dance. And he described the massacre. He was not, uh, this one particular man wasn't there, Hoots, um, but another uh, priest named Father Francis Kraft was at Wounded Knee, and he, he described uh, the events that took place. Um, so this is just a, a, an artist's rendering of the photographs that were taken of, of the Lakotas being put in a mass grave. And if you go to Pine Ridge today, it, it is a place where Lakota people still uh, mark those, those dead um, who were killed in 1890. It's an it's a iconic event in, um, in American Indian history, particularly in Lakota history. And it threw doubt into the Lakotas about their traditional religiousness. The, the Jesuits said that after the ghost dance had come to this close, the ghost dance continued in other places, but among the Lakotas there, it came to a close, that they were more receptive to our message than they had been in the years before. That the stunning defeat, the killing of their men and women and children 
some who were tracked down for several miles by, by cavalry gunners, um, uh, were now m listening more carefully to what the Jesuits had to say about, about their particular religious system. Um, uh, too many pictures, and this is just a, a particular church at Wounded Knee where the, where the wounded were um, taken for medical treatment. Okay, so now I want to describe the coming of a Christian system to the Lakotas after 1890. The, the Jesuits and the Sisters of St. Francis to a second degree, but the Jesuits took charge of the reservation. Right? They, they, they were, if you will, aggressive in their confidence that they had something to offer, that they were going to build institutions that would help the Lakota people and that would teach them something. They had a message that for them was a coherent, deep, all-encompassing message about the nature of the universe and the nature of our place in it. And they used a particular device, which I'm showing here in its, in its uh, you know, whole form, just so you can see it. It's called the two-road catechism. And a lot of uh, Catholic missionaries used this catechism and other forms of it. I'll, and I'll show you uh, uh, more details. It is a, uh, it's about maybe four feet long. It's on cloth. You can roll it out. And it tells everything you need to know about the Catholic faith. Everything. Everything. It tells about the creation, about the oneness of God. It tells about the seven days of creation. It has a picture of God himself. You know, I know you've been wondering, you know, but this is what he looks like. And it tells the story of Adam and Eve, and it tells about their expulsion from the garden, and it tells about uh, Cain and Abel, and it tells about the Tower of Babel, and it tells about the Ark, and Noah, and so forth. I mean, you see it has all of these things that can be talked about and that explain the real history of the universe, as opposed to the stories that the Lakotas told about their universe. And what you start to see as you, as you go up this two-road catechism, this pictorial catechism, uh, is that you have uh, centuries marked off by those black things, all right? So you, you can go from the beginning of time in about 4000 BC, and you can go up right to the, not quite to the present day, but to up to about 1890. And what you start to see, look at the right and look at the left. This is often referred to as the two-road catechism. Oh, oh the, oh, the talk tonight. The crossing of the two roads. Oh, I wonder if this has something to do with what he's talking about tonight. The crossing of the two roads. Well, this is called a two-road catechism because it has two roads that all of humanity must choose from. You walk either one road or the other road. Um, I, you know, now I'm going to give it away to you, but one of them ends up in the fiery abyss and the, uh, the one on the right and the one on the left ends up with reunification with uh, Christ in heaven. 
Christ's central place, his crucifixion, his ascension, um, uh, I mean, his resurrection, his ascension, the building of the church. What is the church? I have these uh, Jesuit um, guidebooks to how to preach from the, um, from the two-road catechism, and they talk about how you can spend a whole day just talking about the church and what the church is as a, as a delivery of sacraments. And if we, if we blew this up more, we'd see that the seven sacraments come right out of Christ's side. They are seven things that come out of his blood and that, that are the, the grace that God gives us in order to reunite with him and so forth. All right, and you can see that some people cross from one side to the other. So it's possible to start off on the, the good road and to end up on the wrong road. Oh, you know, like for example, um, Martin Luther, <laughs> Muhammad, and our favorite heretic, Arius himself. All right, so, so you see that people can move from one side to the other, or they can come from one road and be saved. All right, so I want you to realize that the Jesuits had an intensely integrated message to deliver to the Lakota people. And to a large degree, it was in at least informative and maybe convincing. I'm going to move more quickly now through the slides, but I want you to just to, to look at them. The, um, the Holy Rosary Mission established a boarding school for Lakota children, um, you know, ages three or four to, uh, you know, through high school, you know. And uh, their idea was that this, um, this boarding school at Holy Rosary Mission, which they named the Red Cloud Indian School, so they named it after uh, Red Cloud, would provide a cultural womb that would encircle these children every day of their learning lives. You know, from the time they could be separated from their parents at like age three or four and kept there until they were late in their teens. So they attempted to override the Lakota family and make the Red Cloud Indian School mother and father to these children but not quite mother and father, more like institution of education, of edification, of control, of moral um, comportment, and so forth. And they introduced these children to a whole new set of ritual devices by which one shows one's proper comportment in the world and that bring one into contact with the real Wakan world, which the Jesuits referred to as Wakantanka, one God, Wakantanka, the great holy, the great mystery. And so you had uh, pageants where you could walk, you had ways of dressing, you had gestures as a child that you would be taught. Look at this picture. I, I really, I, sometimes I can't keep my eyes off this picture. So 
first of all, it's a marking of a season. So the new, the new uh, mission introduces a new calendar with so that the whole year starts to take on a Christian hue. You know, every day in the year is named after a saint or after an event in, in Christian history. The, your entire yearly cycle is marked by Christian events, like, for example, Christmas. So you see that these children are in front of a crush and they are learning about Christ and his birth and virgin mother and, and St. Joseph. I bet that many of you, I know I, had exactly those characters in my house when I was a kid. So they are means of, of establishing who the real holy people are in the universe and they also taught them what they are supposed to be like in the company of these images. What, what are these kids doing? I mean, it's so familiar to you that you have to realize this isn't something that Lakota people did. This thing? What is that? What does that mean? You think Lakota people went around like that? They had their own gestures to make relatives, to pray. They had to be taught a new way of holding your hands and of holding your body and of making a face. Look at this girl. Doesn't she have it? She has it. She's learned what you're supposed to look like when you pray. Kneeling. Kneeling. They had to be taught how to kneel. They had to be taught that that's the proper way to come into contact with the divine. To kneel and, to, and what smells you should have from incense. And what a church should look like. So they built... They built these big buildings, these impressive buildings with neo-Gothic art and with saints' pictures on them. And these boys sang in a choir and they sang songs in Latin and English and German and also in Lakota that expressed Christian ideas. Whatever it was Lakota children thought as they said those words. Again, it's mysterious to know. They received First Communion. They dressed up for their First Communion. They started to wear, you know, pants with creases. I got creases on today, you know, just to show you that I'm, you know, I'm taking you seriously. I got creases on. And I expect all of you to have creases in your pants tomorrow. All right, so you know they taught them, ah, and a great place to put your, pocket, you know, put your hands in your pocket. So they learned a whole new set of clothing to wear and gestures to make and, uh, and how to kneel before Mary, Queen of the May. And they combined patriotism with religion so that there were um, uh, American flags there. When... Uh, Paul, especially for you, you know, having written, you know, this is a, in 1943, a Lakota uh, man was killed in the Second World War, and he came back and they had a big funeral at, at Holy Rosary, and you know, so he, 
hybrid patriotism, you know, very much on display there. A high mass with, you know, with four priests officiating and altar boys. So they converted, right? It's clear they converted. Look at them. They're doing all the stuff that you know. I mean, th if those of you who have grown up in a Christian context, or especially in a Catholic context, you say, yeah, 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 I've done the same thing, right? right I've sat like that. I, yeah, that's exactly. I'm in the pews, and I've been at, you know, there's a, you know, there's a, it's the old-fashioned uh, Catholic mass, of course. They're facing away rather than facing forward. But, you know, we'll get up to Vatican II. They buried their dead in Christian grounds and you, and you find in the records that Lakota parents were really concerned that if their children died that they were buried in those Christian grounds because they had learned that if you were not buried in those Christian grounds you were not going to heaven. You had to be buried in, in, in sacred grounds and so there was a real fear of what was going to happen with the afterlife because Christianity is, is a lot concerned with the eternal and with heaven um, and so forth. Something that Lakota religion was not so concerned with. Uh, I just put this w in here because it's, uh, it's um, an All Souls Day uh, event at Wounded Knee and they are, they are honoring the people who were killed in that massacre in 1890. In the schools, the children were made to not only listen to the stories of Christian conversion, of Indian conversion to Christianity, but they were, they acted out the parts. So Kateri Tekakwitha, who I referred to before, the Mohawk maiden, they put on a play here. It's in 1938. It's the 50th anniversary of the founding of, of Holy Rosary Mission. And they had the children in the high school dress up as Kateri Tekakwitha and, and the the Jesuit who is converting her, and there she is on her deathbed, and everyone's praying. So they created a whole story of previous Indians who had converted, and how wondrous it was that they could become Christians. All right, apart from the religious aspects, the children at the school took on a new economic life. So they learned how to pick carrots, how to plant carrots, how to become farmers like white people, um, uh, how to load things in trucks. They learned how to play basketball, so the girls had a basketball team. Um, uh, and there they are. And look at how they're dressed. You know, just look at how they're dressed. When do you think this picture is from? You know, I mean, they've got their bloomers on. I mean, it's, they're taking on the fads, the dressing fads of white society. They seem to be assimilating. Look at the spit curls that they have, the hairdos. They look like, you know, like your grandparents looked when they were teenagers. And the boys' basketball team, you know, there they are. HRM, Holy Rosary Mission. Beat St. Francis, let's go, right? You know, I mean, they, you know, they got into American sports. Uh, this fellow, Bob Clifford, uh, who's back here, uh, one of the, um, oh, he was a coach of, of the basketball team. And I just want you to notice him. I want to refer to Bob Clifford. Um, his children went to Holy Rosary Mission, and he was the coach there, and he was a really honored man there. They were not allowed to speak to him, ever, because 
they were not supposed to have anything to do with their parents while they were at the, at the, at the boarding school. And so he had to keep his distance from his children for all of the years that they were there. Indian parents were not to raise their own children. They were not to come into contact with them. They were considered to be too much in the pagan world. It takes generations, the theory was, for Indian people to really convert. A person doesn't convert. It takes generations for it to happen. And he was considered too touched by paganism. All right, they played in bands. They learned how to sew, do needlework of various sorts under the watchful gaze of Blessed Virgin Mary and, and Jesus suffering on the cross. They learned woodworking. They went to proms, just like you. You know, only, you know this is sort of 1950s proms. They were cheerleaders. You know, this is from maybe 1982, it says, yeah. Um, you know, so there they are taking on the life of Catholic boys and girls. Clearly, conversion has taken place, right? Well, maybe, maybe not. All right, adults. The adults join societies like the St. Joseph Society where they could do good deeds and promise to uh, not drink alcohol and promise not to have anything to do with Protestants and to marry uh, other Catholics and to get rid of their other uh, their previous wives and so forth. So the St. Joseph Society was there. Um, the St. Mary Society did the same thing for women. Every summer, the Lakota adults would have a big Sioux Congress where maybe several thousand Lakota Catholics would gather together. And you can see there's this whole bow here, which is going to replace the old Sundance. And instead of doing the Sundance, you're going to come together and present spiritual bouquets and go to confession and have mass um, and gather together and, uh, under an American flag on the 4th of July. And they had catechists, so they trained Lakota men to be special emissaries of the faith, where they could spread the faith and, uh, um, and spread it beyond the Lakota people, but especially among the Lakotas. All right, so here they, here they are. The most famous of the catechists was a man named Black Elk, Nicholas Black Elk, converted in 1904. He was a medicine man. And uh, he was uh, converted to Christianity in this very dramatic way in which a Jesuit priest found him doing some medicinal ritual and he grabbed him and he said, Satan, get out! And you know, exorcised him and, and Black Elk supposedly said, I'll convert to Christianity. Uh, actually, he'd been a Presbyterian earlier and then an Episcopalian for a while. So, you know, this was a sort of step-by-step -step process. But he did convert and he became an amazing catechist. And look what we have a picture of him doing here. What is this? This is the, the two-road catechism. And there he is preaching to the young and to the old, telling them about the faith. And he became a kind of poster boy for the converted Indian man with his um, uh, rosary beads, and that's his daughter uh, Lucy um, there, you know, on the cover of, um, of a Catholic newspaper. The amazing thing was that in 1932, a book was published called Black Elk Speaks that presented him not as a Catholic, but as a traditional man who had visions, who was very much 
of the traditional Lakota world. And this debate started to take place about Black Elk and whether he was a Christian, whether he was walking the Christian road or whether he was walking the Lakota road. In 1934, the Jesuits made him sign not one, but two documents written by the Jesuits in which he apologized for having taken part in this book written by John Nyhart called Black Elk Speaks. And he, uh, he said, I, you know, I, I had nothing to do with it. I didn't mean to say what I said. I'm sorry. I hope you'll allow me to receive the sacraments. Uh, this was an important thing for the Lakotas then, I mean, um, for the Jesuits then, to make sure that he presented a good face for everyone, especially because in 1934, John Collier in the Indian New Deal was saying that Indian religion was not so bad and should no longer be prohibited in the United States. And so the Jesuits were furious at John Collier for undermining their control, and they worried that the Lakotas were going to go back to their old ways. And so they wanted to control what Black Elk said. Black Elk here, uh, buried in 1950, supposedly buried with the two-road catechism right there. This is his son, Benjamin Black Elk. And I've been to this cemetery, and I've been to the church there, and, if, and as I went to the church, the priest took me aside and he said, you're here to see Black Elk, and I want you to know he was a Catholic. I want you to know that. And when I met Black Elk's great-granddaughter, Charlotte Black Elk, who picture you'll see in a minute, she said, you know, I want you to know, he didn't convert. He was just fooling them the whole time. He was just getting them to think he was converting. He didn't convert. So you start to hear these two very different stories about who he was and what he was, what he was up to. Um, there has been one Lakota priest in all this time, not from Pine Ridge, but from um, uh, St. Francis, uh, J.P. Jordan. Uh, Gerald Clifford, who was the son of Bob Clifford, was a seminarian, but he didn't um, convert, he didn't uh, become a priest, he wasn't ordained. Um, instead, he married Charlotte Black Elk. All right, so now I've got to get my head around this. So the seminarian left the seminary and married Black Elk's great-granddaughter, and I used to hear how terrible Christmas was in their house, that he wanted to have a, um, a, a Christmas tree, and she would not have a Christmas tree in the house. She said, oh, we're not, I'm not a Christian. I will not have that damn tree in this house. And they ended up divorcing over the question of whether there was going to be Christianity or Lakota religion in the house. 1962 to 65, uh, the Second Vatican Council took place with a whole new wrinkle on Roman Catholicism's relationship to the world and its relationship to other religions. And from this time, you start to see Jesuit priests like Father Steinmetz, right? Just, you know, there he is, Paul Steinmetz, who started what was called enculturation. the enculturating, the making of Christianity into something that Lakotas could identify with. And Steinmetz and other Jesuits started to talk about the relationship of Christ <coughs> to the pipe. And they started to say, you know, Christ is just a Christian form of the pipe. 
He is the means by which we communicate to the spiritual world. And they started to smoke the pipe and offer the pipe at Catholic Mass. These Jesuits did. Oh, is that right? And what kind of response did the Lakotas have? Well, some Lakotas, like Benjamin Black Elk, um, Nicholas Black Elk's son, he thought it was great. And there he is on the altar, and I'm sorry it doesn't show up clearly enough, but rather than holy, 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 it says wakan, wakan, wakan on the altar cloth. But other Lakotas were freaked out by it. They said, who gave that priest the right to play with the, pray with the pipe? He's not Lakota. Um, an educator named Agnes Picot, also a Lakota who went to Holy Rosary Mission, said, I'll tell you what it was like to be there. It was to be taken away from your parents and to be treated like a thing for your entire youth. You were lonely, no one loved you, they bossed you around, and you learned not to be an Indian. You learned not to relate to your relatives. It was debilitating. I've also spoken to Lakotas. I don't have a picture of this particular woman, but in 1988 I went to the 100th anniversary of the founding of, of the mission, and I spoke to this one woman, Ellen uh, Jelovich was her name, her married name, and she said to me, um, I'll tell you what it was like to go to, to Holy Rosary Mission as a student. It was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. It helped me escape from this place, from the dysfunctions of poverty. It taught me about a beautiful religion. I left the reservation. I married a white guy. I'm a happily married woman, and I couldn't have done this without the church creating this place. So I want you to know that there's really very different viewpoints among the Lakota about what it was like to be part of this uh, boarding school and to be part of this whole system. The last person I want to talk about is uh, Sister Geraldine Clifford, she's still alive. Um, uh, sister Geraldine Clifford is a sister, I said of, chari um, I said of charity before, because she's a sister of St. Francis, like Sister uh, Marie-Therese Archambault. Um, she is uh, the daughter of Bob Clifford, the b basketball coach, um, and she is a, a sister, and she rose actually in the, in the ranks of, of her sisterhood quite a bit and became a provincial um, and look, you know, looked after other nuns and so forth. And one time in the early 1990s, she went to a meeting of a lot of different American Indian priests, brothers, and sisters. And she said they were all complaining about how miserably they were treated. Their fellow priests hated them. There were racist nuns. There were, you know, there were all kinds of terrible things that had happened to them. And she said she came back to her order. And during a retreat, she said to her fellow sisters, you know, I just want you to know how thankful I am to all of you that you never treated me in a racist way. And they said, Sister, we never knew you were an Indian. And she said, I was devastated by that. I realized that I had become something other than 
a Lakota person. And she decided that she was going to do something to try and turn that around. And so she asked for permission, and she received permission, to set up a thing called the St. Francis, um, I guess it's called the Children's School or Orphanage. She went back to Pine Ridge and she set up a, a, a home for abused and abandoned Lakota children. And she said, this is going to be what I'm going to do for the rest of my life, is to take in the remnants of my people and I'm going to recreate what we used to call wasekie, making relatives. And that's what it means to be a Catholic. Okay, so that's a good place to stop. I've kept you a long time. And um, so do this applause thing, all right, because I've come to an end. And then um, those who want to stay can stay and ask me questions. But I, I realize, you know, I did keep you the three hours I promised. And, um, and so I'll let those who want to leave, leave. Um, and those who want to stay, we can have a, a conversation. All right, thank you very much. Do you want to have a few minutes and we'll just see if there are people who want to, who want to chat, but yeah. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so you, you guys are, are going to go, right? All right, and then let's have a little conversation. If you have questions or comments, I'm happy to I'm happy to have it among among those who remain. Okay. Yeah. Please, yeah. Let, let's do it. Okay. So, so you guys. You guys who are still standing there, out, out the door, okay? Because we want to talk. Yeah, thank you. Sundances. You find Navajo Sundances. Yeah. Right. 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 
Right. I, I don't, yeah, I mean, you haven't asked a question about it, and, and there's no question needed. It's a really good observation about this um, hybridity, and hybridity, I guess, doesn't have to be just two things, right? I mean, it can be, it can be many things. So I used to think, as a teacher, that I was going to say something like, um, I don't know, like new to my students. And the new thing that I wanted to tell them was how one can participate in two different religious traditions, either simultaneously or alternatively in one's life. Or, you know, I mean, like it was a thing that I thought was like a really deep insight into the possibilities of religious life. And at a certain point in my teaching, a student said to me, you know, that, that's not new. Like, you know, my mother's Jewish, my father's Hindu. Like, of course. And I realized that something that had been mysterious and we hadn't thought even was possible, and I thought, oh, I've discovered it and I got something to say to people. I think people are much more comfortable with this idea than they used to be. So, yeah, a very good, very good observation. Yeah, Jim, go ahead, please. Yeah. Yeah, right. It's coming from even a, like a third tradition. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, beautiful. Right, right. I mean, it, 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 is, is really, isn't the illusion that there is some thing as a pure religious identity? Without a doubt, the purity of it is, is you know, I, I think once you look into it, you start to see, you know, there are all these great books about the origins of Christmas and where it, where it comes from. And, and, you know, our colleague Tony Avini has done all these things showing, you know, like where St. Valentine's Day comes from and, all, you know, all these different things. They all have these pagan things. If I left out the word purity, I, I think I would say something like there is a, I don't know, there's a hegemonic tradition that one belongs to that informs most of what you do, that places you in relation to a, a population and a history. And, and whether you can have loyalty, real felt loyalty to two of those or more, it, it used to seem hard to me and now it doesn't seem hard to me. So I, even beyond the purity question, just whether one can move move at all. I almost said the word easily, but I'm not sure it's as easy as, as we think. You know, it's like when you say, well, they can do one and they can do the other. Maybe now, but you know, like 50, before Vatican II, it wasn't an easy thing. Because you know, there, there were people who could withhold your rations or, or, or could yell at you or could say you're going to go to hell. Or, I mean, there were there were, there were consequences. Jim, you want to say more, though, about well, it? Well, I mean, I, I thought you did such a wonderful job of, of making sure that we don't lose the human dimensions of it. This that's, that's what I wanted to do, yeah. And I was thinking about Sister Geraldine Clifford at the end, and certainly you can have religious energies that are very much devoted to trying to maintain, let's not use purity, the integrity of the faith. Yeah, yeah. Right. But of course, if you're doing that, you're still implicitly defining yourself against a threat. Right, right. And so at one point, you know, the system begins to realize that 
Well, she understands the dynamic at a certain point in her life that there's been all this energy really keeping her from exploring another side of her identity. But then that actually suggests a kind of appeal now right. to the Denny's excluded. So I, I think even in the hegemonic strategy, you can use yeah, that word, yeah. there's a kind of, it, it's ultimately self-defeating to think that the hegemony can really be to the established. Right. Uh, but sometimes it can be felt, though. Uh, yeah. like, like she said, um, when she decided she was going to come back to Pine Ridge, she, one of the things she wanted to do was to learn Lakota. She said, I, I didn't know Lakota at all. I knew some words, but I couldn't, I couldn't speak it. And she said, it made me so mad. There was Father Green, Jim Green SJ, spoke fluent Lakota. And she said, I just looked at him every day and I said, great, you speak Lakota and I don't. I mean, you know, so, so it, oh, just, she said it. Just, she's a beautiful human being. I mean, you know, she, she's willing to talk about the, her hurts without, you know, like without seeming like a victim. She's really, I mean, you can see she's a, you know, she's a, did, a gatherer. Did she see that the, the priest who spoke with her wasn't using it properly? No, no, he, he was using it great. He, he, could, he could do it all, but the point was, was that was she had sharing, been, she, was he was even her. willing to, you know, be one of her instructors, but she just felt like, I went to your school. Now, you know, he was her age. It wasn't like he was her teacher. But she identified him as the hegemony. You know, and he, he and his Jesuits had prevented me from speaking my language. And now he can speak it and I can't. And it just, it didn't, I mean, it didn't seem fair to her. No, it wasn't anything. She liked it. She said it was a joke because I, I liked the guy and he was great. And he could speak the language. And he wasn't teaching Lakota kids. He was not. No, he was not. Maybe, maybe, maybe so, yeah, That's yeah. Kind of right. you know, now yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Both uh, St. Nebraska and Ogallala, for education majors, they have to be Lakota studies majors, so they have to right. learn the language. Correct, Whether yeah. Whether they're Lakota students or white students studying there. Yeah. Because the, their, their sense is if you're going to teach in our schools, we want our children to know their language. That's been the big turn around, you know, whether it will really turn around or not. There are a bunch of Lakota speakers. It's not one of the, you know, direly on the edge of disappearance languages. Um, but everywhere I go in Indian country, I run into people trying to recover language. So I was on the um, uh, Cattaraugus Reservation this summer. It's a Seneca Reservation. At visiting, uh, you know, a, a Seneca woman, and she said, "Come on with me. I want to show you what we're doing." And we went into this little cabin, and there were maybe eight people—some old, some young—and they had a um, a written version of the Seneca creation story uh, from uh, Arthur C. Parker from 1917 or so, up on a overhead, and they were reciting it, and they were correcting the grammar and they and they were talking about well no I think what he's really saying there is this I mean they were she's they do it every day so I mean so language recovery is really important I mean it it may actually I mean you know Hebrew was 
Hebrew was, you know, called a dead language. It wasn't, but I mean, it was endangered and people recovered it. That's what, that's what they want to do. Yeah, no, I'm glad to hear that. I, I, hadn't, I hadn't realized exactly what was going on there. Please. I have a few questions. Oh, yeah. One of them is, uh, was there a different style between the Jesuits and the Franciscans? I guess it, or were they both kind of stern, or was one more beloved? You know, it, you'd have to say which ones in which, in which places. Um, uh, well, the, I, I guess what I'm saying is there a cultural thing. They, they, was this German boarding school like that in Germany? As, was it no, no, this is pretty much what, what boarding schools were like. I mean, I, again, I, you'd, I'd have to know more, but I, I would say this was a, a American Indian boarding school in its own time and place, and it was like other boarding schools among American Indians at the same time and place. I, you know, it was, it was closer to uh, um, Carlisle Indian School founded in 1878 um, than it was to anything that German Jesuits had among their own kids. I mean, you know, probably had things in common with the old country, but I, I'd say it was an American phenomenon. And, the, you know, the Franciscans, you know, if you look at them over time, the, in the 17th century, the Franciscans are the ones, uh, you know, especially the Recollets, are the ones who are saying, we don't want any syncretism to take place. We don't want the, you know, they're the ones who call, blow the whistle on the rights controversy in, in China and on Robert de Nibali in, in, in India, the, these Jesuits. So, like, they, they tended to be more standoffish about any aspect of enculturation. But, you know, I've known Franciscans. There was a Franciscan who worked among the Jesuits at, at Pine Ridge. Um, I can't remember his name. Oh, he was a beautiful guy. Anyway, he was, you know, he was like the most loving guy. He said to me, Black Elk Speak should be like, the, it should be the fifth gospel. You know, like I, I've written letters to the Pope asking him to, you know, canonize that book. You know what I mean? So you get, there are different types. Yeah, yeah. And he, he learned the language, and he, as a priest, was forbidden to speak it by his brothers. Mm. Wow. So yeah. His, his yeah. insight, his intuition was correct, but the oppression was on him as a non-native mm -hmm. person. Right. It was very, very. It was a good thing to learn at the time, but it was very sad. And the other thing, I'd love to. This is my last question. With Kateri, is she a symbol of? European, uh, you know, let's be like Europeans, or is this uh, an authentic uh, Native people's movement to have her canonized as a representative of the people? Yeah, so the whole, so you know, there are these Tekakwitha conferences that mm -hmm. take place every summer. There are Kateri circles that exist on, you know, on Indian Catholic communities, but also in white communities. Um, I, I heard a lot of conversations about that. I went to a lot of those um, Tekakwitha conferences, or so maybe like six of them, annual ones, and, and I would listen to the people talk to each other. And sometimes the Indian people would say, you know, this is kind of a white movement. 
that is trying to glorify the convert to show that she's gone over to their side and, and adopted their values. But there are also a lot of Indian people uh, who just are devoted to her. I remember one Mohawk woman saying, I don't believe in God, but I believe in Kateri. Uh, so, you know, and I, I've been to things at um, uh, Fonda, New York, where she lived. Um, so it's across from Maurysville, and, and there's a, you know, a little place there. And I, you know, I've seen Mohawk women who dress up as her and do their own, um, uh, you know, sort of bio drama thing where they play the role of her. And so I, I wouldn't say it's completely manipulated, but there is some, you know, there is some attempt to channel it in a way. You want to ask more? Well, um, the, uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> but, uh, that's all right. OK. All right. And we can talk also. You know. I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying overnight. So, yeah. You, you kids want to ask anything? I mean, you're so nice. We've spent the whole day together now. <laughs> really. Yeah, I, I think the answer has to be, you know, like all those things played roles. Um, in the 1930s, so during the Depression, the Economic Depression, the Great Depression, not like the one we have now, but the, the, the Great Depression, um, I found a lot of letters from Indian parents writing to uh, Holy Rose, well, to, to the Red Cloud Indian School asking, please, would they take their children in because they were starving. They, they, they had nothing. And, you know, here was this place that had three square meals a day. It had a bed. It had, you know, I mean, just think of what this place looked like to Lakotas who, you know, lived traditionally in, in um, skin teepees, buffalo skin teepees, you know, it's not skin teepees, I'm sure, are great, but think of how much solidity these buildings had made of stone and concrete and timbers. And, you know, like they had this kind of institutional power that you, you know, that is imp really impressive. So, you know, people often talk about converts to Christianity and they talk about rice Christians. It's a term from, from Asia so that people would like join the mission so that they could get food. You know, so they're rice Christians. Th I'm sh that's a factor, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't overemphasize that. I think that everything I tried to do tonight is, is to lay out many different motivating factors, and you've named a bunch of them right now. You know, and we have to include the notion that there was something really convincing about this message about Jesus. I mean, something really uh, powerfully attractive about this man who died for our sinfulness, who was going to recreate relationship between the holy and human beings. So I, I wouldn't rule that stuff out. I, you know, I'm not, maybe when I was younger I would be, but I, I'm not one to say, oh, they, it was all this. You know, I can't do that anymore.
I could have done it back, back in, in the late 70s. I, you know, I, I can imagine my, my being a little more well, crass. We saw the mission and then we read about the process and talked about different approaches to yeah. conversion. Yeah. Certainly, certainly environmental or economic conditions are going to change the relationship. Yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah, please say more. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, Oh, yeah, yeah, that was a good, that was amazing. And I noticed um, in the picture of the children wearing the play bags, all the dolls were like white. Right, sure. I mean, you know, and, and on, the, and on the, the two road catechism, you know, God looks pretty white there. <laughs> I mean, no, I mean, that's, that's a thing that, you know, with black theology, you know, with James Cone and what, you know, he wrote about it. it I don't know if you know him, but it, you know he's a really interesting guy who looked into what Christianity was preaching and whether there could be a black theology. You know, and he said, you know, Christianity looks like white theology to me. And you know, I mean, it's hard not to notice that anymore. It's like, well, what do the what do the heroes look like? What do the dolls? What do the models look like? Um, want to say more? No. No, that's I good. Just, that was not okay. You ladies want to say some things? I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I just, you know, I'm happy to answer questions. Well, yeah, I was just wondering, is like, where do we go from here? Because I know you've been emphasizing the idea of language and getting like the Muslim people to learn the language, but what's is there any other like main factor, like main thing that you've seen as you've gone to all these different iterations that they're trying to, to bring back the Native American? I mean, if it's the 20 years of being yeah, that's really a good thing. Um, certainly, education that comes from the community is a highly, highly valued. All right, so having control over your own educational system is, is something important. Um, the land claim movement has been a, a big movement, so you know, how much do I want to say? I mean, oh my God, you know. The Lakotas, you know, including the Pine Ridge Lakotas, have, if you will, sued the government for land taken. And the land taken would, if, if returned, would be the means for economic recovery. You know, I mean, the fact is they were left with really the worst lands in their, in their earlier holdings not to mention the fact that highly sacred lands were taken. And again, I'm not going to go into it, but you know, the Supreme Court has ruled that, that the land was taken not only unfairly, but illegally, and, but it's not going to be returned. They've offered them huge amounts, millions and millions of dollars to try and settle this, and they refuse to settle it. They say, we want land. Okay, so yeah, we want, we want land back for economic reasons, for spiritual reasons, for community reasons. So, you know, land claims, economic, um, you know, rejuvenation. But the thing that I would get at here is this thing called, if you will, um, traditionalism. The notion that the way our ancestors did things was the best way for us. We're going to try to grab that 
as, as, you know, you can't go back all the way, you know, but we, we'll try to get back to some things that will serve as symbols of the way our ancestors lived and like the language, and we will try to recreate that in the modern world. There are also Lakotas who are completely alienated from, you know, from Christianity, from traditional religion, uh, you know, who are into drug culture and gangs and, uh, you know, I mean, there's a lot of dysfunction, uh, you know, especially with alcohol. So rather than moving forward, you're saying that in a way so, Sometimes moving forward means, yeah, means trying to regain something that you can really call your own. So, all right, so, to, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, yeah, okay. It, she, she provided the money for, for Holy Rosary Mission. Okay, and, and, and she, in, in um, St. Michael's in Arizona. Correct. Right. Oh, that's, and that's where, the Navajo, that's where the Franciscans were among the Navajos, right? And, and she, the, the story goes that uh, she went to the leaders of the community right. and uh, was not going to start St. Michael's unless they approved. Mm-hmm. And they figured out a way to get their children to the boarding school. Right. And she worked with the leaders, which seemed to be quite unusual for that day. And I, you know, I've heard that story. I've never been able to see written evidence of that. Excuse me. We certainly have speeches that were recorded from people like like uh, Red Cloud, who went to Congress in 1885 or so, it's in, it's in this, this uh, crossing of two roads, and, um, and said, we want Jesuits to come here. He was the, you know, the reputed political leader. But you have all kinds of questions about what leadership is and who real leaders are. You know, did the Navajos have a, a, a leader who could speak for everybody? Well, you know, at certain occasions there were, but I think it's more, it's just more complicated than that story would, would allow. Um, I, I don't want to say it's a self-serving story. Of course, when I have said that, I'm not going to say it. I have said it, right? Um, she doesn't come out better than anybody else. I, I think she does come off actually quite well. I mean, I, you know, I've read some biographies of her, and she does actually seem like quite a noble person. I have nothing uh, against her, um, you know, her sainthood. She seemed like a saintly person. Please, yeah, Barbara, say more. Um, I was at St. Michael's, and of course, Mother Drexel's sisters are still there. Yes. But what impressed me, uh, and I wanted to see what you thought, um, was that Father Bernard Hales, Franciscan. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, the anthropologist. Yeah, famous anthropologist. For 55 years, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, he's so 
without a doubt. Special yeah. in that yeah. community. Yeah. But the fact that I, what I found so helpful too was he was someone who didn't, in that age when he was there, didn't impose as a missionary his faith on the people, but he allowed them uh, to share their wisdom and mm -hmm. the beauty of their religious tradition with him and to such an extent that he embraced mm -hmm. significant parts of it and right. to know the language, correct. the chants, yeah. the yeah, correct. And right. the accuracy. I mean, there's an awful lot to understanding mm -hmm. that. You know, it just, I found utterly amazing. What is your take on that? Uh, Peter Powell, later, a later fellow Episcopalian who, who uh, did these things among the um, Cheyenne. Uh, Cheyenne, right. Um, my take on it is that what I would say is that he became more anthropologist than missionary. And my, uh, you know, I've read the, there's a biography of him, I think it's called Indian Man or something like that. Uh, maybe that's not the title, but I've read a biography of him. And my impression is that he, um, he, he kind of stopped being a missionary. Like he, he was there and he was recording ethnographic information and he, I would say he was more an anthropologist than a, than a missionary. He still said mass, he still was a priest, but I don't think he had any interest after a while in converting. Is that uh, your definition of a missionary? Because that is not the correct definition of a missionary. The, no, you what I'm saying yeah. this is back in the 30s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 You're asking me, yeah. Uh, uh, so, yeah, missionary uh, is someone who, is, who feels sent out according to the Great Commission, right? I mean, it was Matthew uh, 28, yeah, um, to preach the Gospels and, and to bring people to Jesus. And I think that he no longer felt that was a thing he, well, uh, he needed to do. The, the current missionary definition. Oh, is, oh, I thank you. Thank you. Yeah. find Jesus in the culture that you're going to. Okay, yeah. So uh -huh. in a way, all Very well said. Yeah, and very well said. And, Good. And so it's a complete reversal mm -hmm. in the sense of, uh, uh, of discovering God's presence way then and there and pulling it out and being converted yourself. Right, right. That's kind of no, Very well said. Very well said. All right, time for us Maybe to stop, so right? Yeah, yeah, thanks, thanks. Yeah. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, well.